my name is William. Um, I'll go by William McCauley online. And um, what, I, what this is, is I have a group that meets twice a month and it's called uh, Indianapolis Philosophy Meetup. And um, it's, you know, very broad range of topics, but we would try to approach things from like a you know, philosophical standpoint or be open to a lot of different philosophical opinions. And um, I, I I love the philosophy of religion a lot. And so what I wanted to do for the group ultimately was to have different guest speakers, guest thinkers to discuss their, their various perspectives so people could have a, a dialogue with them. So it wouldn't just be us kind of talking to each other, but it'd be like us having the best representatives of different positions because like I could talk about Catholicism or Marxism or anarchism or something like that, but it's better if you have someone who's either an expert in or has been steeped in it for a long time to represent it. So you can have like a fair representation of it. And so you're, you're actually the first person I've had as a guest. So for for the first few months, it's just been people who I've, you know, just local people us discussing things, but I really want to have, um, to start having virtual and live guests. And so I've listened to your podcast a lot. So I thought you'd be a good first guest. And, and, um, a lot of people who are in this group have a, they either have a Christian background or they, uh, or it's usually a, kind of a Christian background or a Buddhist background or something like that. They're, they're familiar enough with it that they have uh, a familiar with like the various like theistic terminology and some of the arguments and stuff like that. And so um, when I told him that, like I have a, a guy who wants to discuss his uh, evidences or at least at least his reasons for believing monotheism, we, we got pretty excited. So I'm, I'm uh, very interested in talking about this stuff. So my own position is I, you could say I, I would say I'm probably best described as agnostic. I think that, you know, our, our, our philosophy or intuition does point us to there being something there. But then we want, then we start making a lot of specific claims about what it is. And I think we kind of get in the weeds now. Um, obviously, most uh, Abrahamic monotheists are going to disagree with that. Um, and then the, the biggest thing is just on my position is that I feel like people associated ideological baggage with theism. So they think theism answers the question of like, afterlife and moral realism or tells us how to interpret religious experiences or all that kind of stuff. And I don't think theism does that. So I think that if you make a good theistic argument, you still have to justify all the various divine attributes or explain if God wrote a book or not, or if there's resurrection, like that doesn't, it doesn't answer a lot of those associative questions people have. Like, like we don't know if God, you know, what what God thinks about animal suffering or genocide or masturbation or homosexuality, like, like all all that additional stuff is stuff people would have to argue for later. But I, I still think the, the question of um, theism does it allows us to kind of sharpen our philosophical tools and to clarify like our most basic like you know, epistemic assumptions or metaphysical assumptions and stuff like that. So even if someone's not a believer, I still feel like there's value in getting at the question of like, like fundamental ontology or fundamental metaphysics and stuff like that. So you, you used to be an atheist or self-described atheist at some point. Yeah. For my whole entire adult life up until the age of 39. Like I remember the exact moment I lost my faith in God and in Christianity. Obviously if I lost faith in God, I lost my faith in Christianity at the same time. It was by means of a very holy and pleasant religious dream where I was being waved at by Jesus Christ uh, he was standing on a desert island with a palm tree, and he was waving pleasantly to me as my point of view drifted back from him, and I woke up and I realized that I had lost my faith. I knew that that was counterintuitive, but I just went with it. What would you say your your strongest reasons for not believing in monotheism were at the time? 
I mean, I was 14 when I lost my faith and uh, 25 years later at age 39, I consider my adolescent rebellion to have ended finally at long last. So I, I see it more in terms of childish rebellion, selfishness than in terms of intellectual ideas. But as soon as I lost my faith, I turned to philosophy. I started reading actually logical positivism and uh, it certainly resonated with me. So I went straight from monotheism and Christianity in particular to a sort of hardcore physicalism, naturalism, scientism, and logical positivism. So it was quite interesting. So were you like position that God probably didn't exist or God couldn't exist or that God talk was meaningless? Well, I mean, I went to bed at age 14 thinking that God did exist. I said my prayers as usual, and then I woke up and I said to myself, God does not exist. Well, damn. So obviously you believe in God now, but is that, would you say that's based on reasons that are kind of, would, would be generally accepted by people who like reflect on them? Or is it kind of like I had, a, you had a specific experience that only somebody who had that experience could understand it or something like that? It's hard to say. It's really mysterious, but I can tell you what happened on the surface. Like I told you, right after my conversion to atheism, I started getting into naturalism and logical positivism and my philosophical interests petered out for some years as I went to university and was focused on having fun and meeting women. And then uh, once I settled into my marriage, I've been married for 25 years now. Once I settled into my marriage, uh, it sort of gave me time to get back into my philosophy. So as I was studying philosophy, I went the whole gamut from the pre-Socratics up through to Rene Descartes. And when I read Rene Descartes' Discourse on Method, by that point, I was a heart solipsist. I believed that I was the only being. And uh, of course, I'd gone through all kinds of worldviews through my reading. I ended up passing through German idealism, which had a profound effect on me. And so I ended up being a heart solipsist. And it was Rene Descartes who offered me a way out. And that way out was not so much a logical, rational proof of God's existence, so much as just a sort of shrugging of the shoulders and a complacent, well, of course, God exists. Of course, he's real. Of course, he's good. And of course, uh, I'm not being fooled by an evil demon. So it wasn't a very rigorous philosophical conversion, but on the same time, it was couched in the language of philosophy, and it came as a result of reading philosophy. So you don't like René Descartes' argument? No, I do like it. I, I mean, he doesn't really make an argument. There's a leap of faith that's required to get from naturalism to monotheism. There's a leap of faith that's required. There's absolutely no way to get out of solipsism without a leap of faith. But um, I think I may have found a rational deductive proof that solipsism is false, a reduction to absurdity proof that God exists. And it goes like this, either I am God or God is God. And if I'm wrong when I claim that I am not God, then I'm also not wrong. Because if I'm wrong when I say that I'm not God, then I am God. And God cannot be wrong, therefore God is God. So that's my reduction to absurdity proof. And it does require one axiomatic assumption. And that can only be arrived at through an existential encounter with the fact that life simply is. It's a brute fact that there is one necessary being and that that being is not contingent, not composed of parts. It just is. Even when I was an atheist, I, I encountered this being and I, I, you know, obviously I made the mistake of identifying myself with that being because I do have being. And even when I deny my being, I assert my being, I affirm my being. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's an honest mistake to make when you're an atheist, when you encounter the reality of God, it's sort of a, a natural tendency 
to identify yourself with that God? Aren't there a lot of models of theism? I mean, like you have pantheism, you got panentheism. Well, yeah, I was in pantheism. For most of my 25 years as an atheist, I was a pantheist. To this day, I classify pantheism as a form of monism. There's one thing, and that's God. And I classify hard solipsism, certain forms of Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism. All of these are pantheistic in that way. Okay, I mean, I, I think we can agree on this, that our conventional realist assumptions like can't really be justified without making some leaps of faith, right? So like to have our everyday ontology does require some assumptions. We don't immediately perceive that solipsism is false. Yeah, there's a technical term for the default sort of naive view, and it's called naive realism, where we just take for granted that uh, the other is real. And of course, the material universe is real. So these are two fundamental assumptions that most human beings that aren't psychotic carry with them. And uh, if you go into something like idealism, uh, you can sort of undermine those assumptions. Or of course, if you go as far as hard solipsism, you can also attack those. I'm about to pass the baton to uh, my friend here. He's got some questions for you. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I'm not understanding how you equate solipsism with pantheism, solipsism says, I exist and nothing else exists. That's right. Is that correct? Okay. Pantheism, or the versions of pantheism that I've studied or been involved with, have acknowledged things outside of the self. So I'm not sure how you equate the two terms. Well, if you press a pantheist, they will always admit that separation is illusion and the other is illusion and we are one. It's one. God is one. So there are loose and corrupted forms of pantheism, just as there are loose and corrupted forms of Christianity. Just like every Christian you meet doesn't actually believe all of the dogmas that he's obliged by his religion to believe. I meet old women at church who believe in reincarnation. That's strictly forbidden. But people have watered down corrupted ideas and they bring in a mixed bag, a hodgepodge of uh, paganism, Satanism, pantheism, a new age, everything. They, everyone brings a mix of everything that they like under that label that they're adhering to. Maybe they're only going to Catholic Church because they like the community. Maybe they like the bingo. Maybe they were just raised with that. So it's the same thing with the pantheist. Maybe they don't know. But if you press a true devoted pantheist, you'll see that separation is illusion and the other is illusion. Okay, I'll buy that. I, I see where you're going with that. Um, I'm going to ask you one other question, and then I'm going to pass the baton back to William. Sure. Um... In your reductio that you mentioned earlier, your reductio ad absurdum, you started with the premise, either I am God or God is God. Why aren't we, for example, beginning with a supposition that I am God or William is God or God is God? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know how solipsism works, right? There is no other. Only I am. That's what sole ipse means. I, I alone am. So, um... Yeah, there is absolutely no good reason to say that William is God. I mean, either I'm God or God is God, from my perspective. Now, from William's perspective, either William is God or God is God. And from your perspective, either you are God or God is God. Like, this is the existential headspace that you have to enter into. And the way to enter into hard solipsism is to be a radical skeptic. This was the approach of René Descartes, radical skepticism. He explicitly mentions this throughout his works, that that's how we need to build a solid epistemological foundation is by doubting everything that can be doubted. And the only thing we can't doubt is I am, which ironically is the name of God, right? I am Yahweh. Yes. I, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with Descartes. I actually, I'm, I'm an atheist myself, but I think that, but I'm not a hard atheist. I don't 
dismiss the possibility of God's existence out of hand. But I think if there is a good philosophical proof for the existence of God, it is probably some version of the ontological argument that Descartes posed and uh, St. Anselm before him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. As an atheist, I was chewing on Anselm's ontological argument for eight solid years. Like to this day, I don't claim to understand the ontological argument, but there's food for thought there. And it's a sort of Zen koan that you can just chew on. And it's sort of like a drug trip. And for eight years, I chewed on it. And at the end of that eight years, I was a monotheist. So is that cause and effect or is it just correlation? I don't know. God only knows. Um, I, I lied. I'm going to ask one more question and then I will pass the baton back to William. Um, one of the components of the ontological argument, and I suspect it's a component of your belief in God, is that God is a perfect being. Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah. Okay. Um, given that God is both omnipotent and omnibenevolent, yet there are clear cases of suffering which do not seem to have any greater end. Can you, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear your answer. I'll, I'm going to pass the phone to our other friend here, and he's going to communicate with you and me as well. So if there is a God that does exist, and he's a unified consciousness, then being alone would be very terrible. Mm -hmm. So in order to have friends and family, you have to create beings with free will. Otherwise, they're just going to be mimics. Sure. So in order to create a being with free will, you have to wipe its mind of any divine source whatsoever. Okay. We have to be tabula rosa, which means that we have to go through period of, of experimentation, mm -hmm. so to speak, so that we can practice creativity without eventually causing suffering. But we have to go through the school period first. Sure. So we're blanked out, we're blot our minds are blotted out, we're sent down into this dark realm of experience where we experiment with each other, make all of our mistakes, and then finally realize what mistakes we were making. And then uh, after we've had all of our practice, then we're done and we go back. Okay. I agree. I am a strong believer in free will. That is a baseline axiomatic assumption for me. We can pretend to not believe it, but we never really don't believe it. But to believe in a perfect God, you have to explain terminal stage four painful cancer in a two-year-old. No, I, I would say it's us. Like We are creative beings just like God, so we create these things out of our Maybe it has something to do with the unconscious, that these things arise from our, our clashing and our interacting. Uh, you know, maybe one of us, like, a billion years ago threw a rock at somebody and it landed in a pool, which caused a chemical reaction, which had a chain reaction through time, which ended up with somebody getting cancer, some child getting cancer. It, it, it comes down to the ill will, the humans have for each other or or not just humans animals that throughout time as they evolved they they had this survival of the fittest i'm the only one that matters i need to eat like i'm going to kill this thing over here and over time this this cycle ended up in in the unconscious basically devouring itself so an all an all powerful and all benevolent god would rather the three-year-old suffer from terminal cancer than tweak a ripple in the pond? But if it, no, wait, tweaks, wait, wait, wait. If it tweaks a ripple, mm -hmm. one ripple, 
it has destroyed free will. It absolutely cannot interfere. I'll let David, I'm sorry. Not a problem. There is a perfect God who created a perfect paradise for mankind, the Garden of Eden, and we were given a commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree, and we ate it, and we have this fall from grace, and we lost all kinds of power, special powers. Uh, that were not uh, part of our nature, but which God gave us in the garden. And uh, now we have a tendency to evil and to sin. And uh, every evil that we see in the world around us results from sin, original and actual. And of course, God is able to bring a higher good out of this evil. And of course, the second person of the Trinity incarnated and suffered and died for us. And we have the option of obtaining forgiveness of our sins and uh, attaining heaven not by our merits, but by the merits of the God-man Jesus Christ. So it's just important to understand uh, whether you believe it or not. This is my perspective as a Catholic, and an all-good God created a perfect world. We messed it up. All of the evils we see in the world, whether it's stubbing your toe, or a tsunami, or uh, an epidemic of disease, or a rape, or murder, whatever it is, it all stems from sin, original and actual. And the only way we could sin was with free will, which is a good gift of God, but a gift which we abused. So that's basically the whole story in a nutshell. Okay. Um, you may be right. I am not categorically denying your argument. However, I just want you to be aware, just in case you're not, you probably are, you seem like a very learned philosopher. You've introduced about 20 auxiliary hypotheses there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I said we can come back to examine uh, why I believe what the church teaches, but we've got to pick and choose our questions. Okay, so do you, do you think that without, like, the additional information is supplied by Catholicism Revelation that we that you could address, like say the problem view or something like that. So if you just had, yeah, like, yeah, 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 just with straight up classical theism, we know that God is all good and that He's infinite in every perfection, and that He is perfectly simple. He's not composed of parts. He's not subject to change. Uh, you can really flesh out most of what you need to know about classical theism without getting into any specific brand of monotheism. Okay, here's a question. So you say God's not subject to change, right? Correct. I, I have no idea what that means, because if God creates stuff, then he there's a time where he wasn't creating stuff, so it seems like a direct contradiction. Like, a God who doesn't change and God who creates are, complete, are contradictory concepts. Because you're thinking about God as a big man in the sky, but he's not a big man in the sky. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. You need to trust and believe that God is different. He's in a different category, and uh, he's not just a big man in the sky. So let me throw a question at you. If I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, you seem to be essentially saying that God is not just practically, but theoretically inscrutable. We cannot understand, fully understand God. Correct. If that is true, then it seems to me that there's not a huge benefit in discussing this rationally at all, but rather that we must rely on a mystical, ineffable experience, which may be a way of knowing. I don't, I won't say categorically that it's not, but it seems like you have to rely on that. Is that what you're saying? I mean, are you, uh, do you have a significant other? Are you married? Yes. Well, I've been married for 25 years. It's an absolute delight every day to discover new things about this person. It's an infinite source of joy to me because I love her. And I think you're absolutely right that the mystical existential approach to religion is a much more satisfying, a much more fulfilling approach to take than the philosophical, intellectual, and cerebral approach. But both go hand in hand. And uh, it's a dogma of the Catholic Church 
that we can know the existence of God and the attributes of God, many of the attributes of God, by the light of natural reason without recourse to divine revelation. So there's a lot to be gained there, and I'm the type that enjoys philosophy, I enjoy theology, and I'm no expert, but uh, I'm just a little schmuck who uh, fell in love with God. So you'd be saying then that through reason, I could not completely know God, but I could know God better. Yeah, everyone can get to know God better. That's what heaven is. Heaven In heaven, we'll be discovering more and more and more and more, and uh, it's never boring. A lot of atheists seem to think that heaven's boring and that God is stupid, but uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, no. When I was uh, in my Christian days, which lasted for a good 15 or 20 years, I, I found heaven to be an exciting concept because learning forever. I, I, yeah, I definitely uh, can appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, here's my... Um question so you have these divine attributes but then like we ask like when we try to like now i understand like it's not going to be completely intelligible but if the first move from what is omniscience or divine this and that mean is like oh god's inscrutable then like why can't everybody else make that move like why can't we say like, well pantheism's true but it's really inscrutable or like i, I feel like you don't you don't let the, the non-monotheists make the same moves to mystery or inscrutability that you're making like no no i i, I give full license to everyone's worldview if you're a nihilist go for it if you're a solipsist go for it if you're a monotheist go for it but i've experienced two out of those three i've never been a nihilist but i've experienced hard solipsism and it sucks and I've experienced monotheism, and it's amazing. And uh, I don't want to experience nihilism because I know a couple of nihilists, and uh, it's not fun, you know? So this is not a reason to be a monotheist, but I'm just telling you that if you taste and see that the Lord is good, then you, you know, you've tasted, you've seen. But you can struggle with the intellectual side, but until you're desperate, you won't, you, you your pride won't allow you to say, uncle, that's my direct experience. I mean, I might be wrong. I might be just uh, insane. There's no way for you to validate my experience, but you can consider the testimony that I'm giving you and think about it. And then when you have an existential experience, maybe it'll be a little bit easier for you to let go of your pride and to uh, say yes to God, because God is so gentle and loving. It's win, win, win. I mean, I've never been reproached by God. I was an atheistic Satanist. I was very anti-Catholic, very anti-Christian, very anti-God, and God never once reproached me when I came back to him. He's flooded me with light, with love, with warmth, with joy, and with learning, and with clarity, and vision, and it's all good, you know? I mean, I get my own belief about like, now if we're talking about the psychology of religion, I mean, I think that Christianity works for some people and some people it doesn't, and theism works for some people, some people it doesn't. I mean, it, in the sense that there's plenty of fulfilled Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims or whatever, like there's, it, 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 does, it does not appear that the, the, that the metaphysical truth of the belief constrains its uh, psychological uh, impact. Like it seems like people can have a variety of different beliefs that, Obviously, all can't be true, but it seems like people seem to have transformative impacts regardless. Yeah, if I were to preach to a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew, an atheist, a nihilist, a solipsist, my message would be the same. Be authentic. Go for it. Don't be mediocre. Mediocrity is the only danger, really, in every worldview. It's the only dangerous mediocrity. If you don't push yourself, if you don't think about what you believe and why you believe it, then you're in danger. You're in danger, really, of missing out on life. And uh, that's a tragedy. And uh, I know that there are good, devout Muslims that are going to go to heaven, and the same thing uh, for Jews and Hindus and uh, even atheists. There are good atheists that are going to go to heaven. Now, to get there, they're going to have to somehow enter the Catholic Church because it's a dogma of the Church that there is absolutely no possibility of salvation outside of the Catholic Church. So, 
I'm not worried about the atheist, but the good atheist will make it to heaven. How they enter the church before death, that's a mystery that I don't have access to, but I trust in God. And I know that there are a lot of good people. Uh, most of my friends and relatives are atheists, and uh, a lot of them like to hide behind agnosticism, but they're basically atheists. And uh, I'm not worried about them. You know, I'm praying for them. And uh, Okay, so I, I got some people just came in. Uh, so I just, I have a, I have, I'm having trouble summarizing the argument. So just, just to go back to the... Uh the proof you gave. So you're saying either I'm God or God is God. And you're saying I'm not God. So God must exist. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, because of the brute fact of existence, eternal life is something that I encountered and that I was confronted with in an existential crisis until you've seen it. I could talk till I'm blue in the face. You just won't get it. But it's, it's like back in the 1980s. I don't know if you were alive then, but back in the 1980s, they had these uh, magic posters where you could stare through it and see a 3D image of a unicorn or whatever. And uh, for a few days, I tried, I failed, I tried, I failed. And my friends were laughing and uh, describing what they saw in these different posters at the mall. And uh, finally, I just got it. You know, I saw it. And uh, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's the same thing with eternal life. Like, if you reach the depths of despair that I reached in my philosophical crisis uh, by entering into idealism and then solipsism, then maybe you'll uh, you'll see it too. But until then, uh, all of these words are uh, just going to bounce off you. It's just, uh, there's not much I can say. It's not, well, it's not even that. It's like, I, I agree with every premise of your argument. I just, I just don't see how the conclusion that monotheism true follows from us. I, I agree that like, you know, re reality is real and all this crap, but like, I don't see how you get to monotheism. <laughs> from your well, as a hard solipsist, I did not believe that reality was real. I was the only being and I was not an embodied being. I was a disembodied being, right? With no parts. Let's, 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 let's just say, look, let's just say it's all true. The reality is real, slips and false, whatever. Let's just, let's just concede all that. I don't see how you get to monotheism from that. I was talking about my experience of going from solipsism to monotheism, which was just a leap of faith based on an existential crisis. But if you want to work backwards, we can go from the material world to the first cause, the uncaused first cause, which is necessarily infinite in every perfection, necessarily non-material, non-spatial, non-temporal, and we can go one by one and we can prove all of the attributes of God as per classical theism. We can do that, but it's going to take about a week. But um, if you want to just pick up a book of uh, medieval philosophy and learn for yourself, I recommend Blessed John Duns Scotus. His modal argument is ideal because it doesn't necessitate a beginning to the physical universe. It works even if the physical universe is infinite. And a lot of the atheists that I encounter, they like to insist that there's infinite time behind us. So uh, that's not an obstacle for him. And he uses uh, a hierarchical uh, series of uh, causality that's uh, in the moment, and uh, you can you can sidestep that whole issue of the beginning of creation. So it's a really interesting uh, proof. I I can't uh, summarize it for you quickly. I just recommend if you're interested, go look it up. And uh, if that's too heady for you, uh, because he's called the subtle doctor for a reason, because a lot of his argumentation is very, very subtle. If that's too uh, difficult for you, then just go to something like St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, his second argument is similar, but weaker. Okay, so, so so the very first premise, like you say, either I'm God or God is God, that seems to be false, because you, you why couldn't they both be true? Why couldn't God be God and you be God? Well, yeah, time? I mean, if I'm God, then God is God, and that's me right? But if you want to have a proof, a rational proof, and start with the assumption that the natural world is real, then you're going to have to go look at something like uh, the modal argument of Blessed John Duns Scotus, or the second proof of St. Thomas Aquinas, or something like that. Or you could even, if you want, you could even go to an ontological argument like uh, St. Anselm, but I don't think that that is 
the kind of proof that will convince anyone. Although, uh, like I said at the beginning of this, it might very well have convinced me. I chewed on it for eight years and I ended up being a monotheist, right? So, so I just, my, my question is, is, is it logically possible that you're God and God's God at the same time? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, if hard solipsism is true, then I'm God, but I don't believe that I'm God. <laughs> I don't. I don't think you can prove you're not God. I feel you would struggle to prove it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if I'm God, I got nothing to worry about. <laughs> Two things: one on your side, and one that I have a question about. Um, I agree that if we're not solipsists, that I can't be God at the same time as God is God. If we're separate beings, because then the question arises. Who would have power over who? And that reverts back to what you said about polytheism. And in every polytheistic religion I'm aware of, like you said, one God always sits on the top. Yeah. Um, my question about your uh, something else you posed is uh, referred to as the cosmological argument, that the, the first cause argument. I'm not sure why there must be a first cause. There's nothing logically that keeps there from being an infinite chain of caused causes. Well, there's entropy, right? There's an ever-diminishing amount of useful energy in the universe, so either there's a first cause or there's not a first cause. If there is not a first cause, that means that there is an infinite amount of time behind us, and therefore, if there's an ever-diminishing amount of useful energy in the universe, and we still have useful energy today, then that proves that there's not infinite time behind us. So that rules out that possibility. So we know that there's a first cause behind us, but we have to ask now, is that first cause natural or not? And if it is natural... That means it's temporal. And when we say it's the first cause, that means it's not caused. It means it's always been there. And if you combine those two ideas of something that's always been there with something that's temporal by its very nature, then you have infinite time behind us. That cannot be the case. Therefore, we know that there is a first cause and that that first cause is not natural. And that's what everyone calls God. The second law doesn't refer to a starting point. It just says entropy is increasing. If entropy is ever increasing one direction, it would follow that it's ever decreasing in the opposite direction. It increases without limit. It could decrease without limit. Yeah, but the amount of useful energy is always decreasing, and we still have useful energy today. That means there's not an infinite amount of time behind us. That doesn't follow at all. I'm sorry. It does follow because, you know, the heat death is coming, right, in the universe? Sure. Yeah. So the heat death has not yet arrived, but it only takes a finite amount of time for the heat death to arrive, but the heat death has not arrived. Therefore, there's a finite amount of time behind us. Okay. Here's the thing. So you, you're saying the first cause doesn't change. And I said, well, if the first cause doesn't change, how does it start going from not creating to creating? And then the other thing is if, if the first cause doesn't change, then it's not going to cause anything because that would mean that the effects of the first cause would have to be eternal because if the first cause is the same all the time, it's not going to generate anything. Without recourse to divine revelation, we can know by the light of natural reason that the first cause is pure actuality. There's no potential in the first cause. So it's not subject to change. It's not composed of parts and it's not contingent. It just is what it is. It, it is being itself. It is, like I said at the beginning of this talk, it's not just a big man in the sky. It's categorically different from creation. And space and time are created by this pure actuality, which is perfectly simple and not subject to change. If you're scratching your head saying, wow, this is hard to understand, it's because it's God. It's the first cause. It's categorically different from creation. Creation is finite. Creation is contingent. Creation is radically contingent. I'm going to hand off to my two, and I'm, then I'm going to wrap up. Sure. Um, hey, um, when you say the first cause, so is that saying, like, it all starts with God, nothing else before that? Could you fill in the blanks for me there? 
Are you speaking now into a microphone or a telephone, or what are you using as your device to talk to me now? Yes, I'm talking into a phone. It's a phone? Okay. So look at that phone in three-dimensional space and in the dimension of time. So you have space-time, right? So you're looking at this four-dimensional object. It's made of length, width, and breadth, and it's moving through time, okay? This phone that you're looking at right now. So now I'm going to pretend that you're God and that all of space-time, the four dimensions, are contained in that three-dimensional physical object, okay? So you're outside of space-time. So you're looking at this little object, which is all of history, all of from the beginning of creation to the end of creation. It's in that cell phone that you're looking at right now, okay? So you're God, you're standing outside of your creation. You made this thing, and it is, you didn't make it in time, you made it to be time. It is time, it is space-time. So you're outside of it, You're you're in a completely... A superior relationship to that object, which is all of space-time, all of creation. Of course, it boggles the mind, and this is not a perfect analogy. Obviously, we can't push it too far, it's going to break. But just think about that, that little cell phone that you're looking at right now, it could fit in your pocket, and it's all of history, all of space-time, from the very beginning to the very end. That's how you have to think about God in relation to space-time. It's just a little plaything for him. He's so far above it, and he can enter into it because he's the creator of it, and he knows it intimately. When God made nature, he was not frustrated in his design. He made it to be natural, and he made it to be spatial and temporal. Grace does not destroy nature, it perfects nature. Just like when I program my computer and make a little video game for my nieces to play. I'm in control. I can make the game with the boundaries and all the limitations and all the points that they get and how they score and how they win, how they lose, how they can die, how many lives they get. And uh, I can control the situation and I can intervene at a distance using my networking skills and I can sort of make miracles happen in this game for my nieces that are playing in a different city. So it's the same sort of thing with God. I want you to think about all of nature being his creation and he lets things roll according to the rules, the predetermined rules and guidelines and the game mechanics, if you want to think of it as a video game. And at the same time, he can intervene. So uh, that's just a little image I wanted to leave you with at the end of our discussion today. And of course, there are many other questions we could ask. Uh, You know, I didn't give sufficient or satisfying answers to probably any of your questions, but I hope at least you guys have taken away some food for thought and something to think about. Okay. All right. Thanks, man. Good talking to you. I I know we'll talk again. For sure. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll be in touch. Take care, man. Take care. Good night. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask.